Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back to you, too. I didn't go anywhere. We both went somewhere. Where do we go for the 14 days that we're not doing liftoff? <laughs> Wander Space. the wilderness. Yeah, maybe that's probably more like it. But mm-hmm. we got a good show. We got a pre-flight checklist with some items in it. And we also have an interview uh, with a, 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 a person who has been working on space stuff for quite a while now in her career um, at uh, Johnson Space Center. And uh, so that's the, that's a really fun interview that uh, we also get, have today. So it's just a little mix, little mix of things, some news, some interviews. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. Uh, let's start in what my is my favorite category of topic on this show. Uh, hashtag silly things Elon Musk says. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. This is everybody rev up your uh, your email clients to send us complaints that we are either too kind or too mean to Elon Musk. <laughs> he can take it. He'll be strong. Mm-hmm. He spoke at a panel at South by Southwest uh, last week, and the BFR, SpaceX Next Generation, big something rocket. Fabulous. Going to Mars, reusable, that big thing. Big, f- fabulous rocket. Fabulous. Yeah. Is that what it is? Fantastical. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure it's something like that. Mm-hmm. Fancy. Uh, yeah, that may actually be what people refer to it as officially. Big, in, a big in, fancy in, rocket. Big fancy rocket. So SpaceX has been talking about this rocket for a while. They've done some video stuff of it. You know, they have their uh, sort of hype machine they get running. But in this talk or interview or something, he he says that he expects the spacecraft's first test flights to be in the first half of 2019. And if you're listening to this when this episode comes out, it is March of 2018. So we're talking a year from now. That I would put in the category of optimistic. Well, as so many things are that Elon Musk talks about, yeah. right? Yeah, it you know, I've really only put this in here uh, a because it's fun. It's it's fun to sort of poke fun at his um ability to tell time, but I do think that uh, you know, it just showed that they are that they are working on it, that they are that they have started on it. He says that they are underway. Um, with the production of it. I don't really know if there's much detail around sort of what stage of production they're talking about, if they're uh, in the design phase or if they're building building stuff yet, but uh, they very clearly are working on it. And, you know, the first half of 2019, you know, maybe more likely 2020 or 2021, but this is uh, on the horizon sort of officially now as they've they've put their foot down saying this is something that we are currently working on. Yeah, they also say that they're going to uh, send cargo missions to Mars by 2022, which also seems like it's completely um, unlikely. But yeah. I can't wait for SpaceX to do something on time. It would that be would be awesome, amazing. Um, but that 2022 uh, is important because you do have certain launch windows uh, to get to Mars in a reasonable amount of time, and so there is a window that will open, and then if they miss it, they have to wait a while again before that that happens again. So there is incentive to reach these dates, to be ready for that launch window. Uh, you know, unlike the Falcon Heavy, which was like five years from the first date he said to when it actually flew. I mean, there's deadlines there, but there's not like the planet's going to be further away from you type of deadline. You know what I mean? Like um, there is a real incentive here to, to hit that date. So, um, so yeah, so we'll see how it goes. I think 
uh, for me at least, it was sort of a realization of like, oh right, this is a thing that is is now beyond just an animation or, or a PowerPoint. This is a an actual vehicle that is being uh, produced in some fashion now. Yeah, it's exciting. It is. Uh, while we're talking about big rockets oh, and boy. dates that don't make any sense. Yeah, it's uh, not just uh, <laughs> SpaceX; it's NASA too. <laughs> you put this thing in about the SLS. Uh, what's what's going on here? So the space launch system, the uh, this is the big rocket for NASA for their program, and, and I believe our guest is working on uh, Orion, which is a capsule that would be placed atop the SLS. Right, that's the mm-hmm. idea there. Um, it it is we and we mentioned this time frame a while ago because it's it's one of these gotchas. We've been talking a lot about the first launch of SLS. Like when are they going to get that first launch? It keeps get getting pushed back. And this is the next generation rocket that is that is run by NASA, controlled by NASA. Um, what uh, there's a story that we can put in the show notes from space.com about how in the budget NASA is not seeking funds. Doesn't mean Congress might not give them the funds and tell them to do it, but they're not seeking funds to develop a second mobile launcher for SLS. And now, why is this? Why why a second launcher for a rocket that hasn't launched? One of the issues is that if they only have the one launcher, it means that after the first launcher, uh, due to the fact that the second the first launch of SLS is going to be different than the second launch of SLS to the point where they have to modify the launch platform. And they say that'll take about 33 months. So that's almost three years. Um, and if if they don't build a second one, if they build a second one, then the second one could be built in a shorter amount of time, presumably. And then they would have a second one. It would cost money, but they would have a second one so they could launch the second SLS flight sooner. Uh, and what NASA is saying is we aren't going to do that. Uh, what that means is when we finally get to the point where the SLS, which is delayed, long delayed, and we're hoping that we, you know we'll finally see it and it'll be like the U.S.'s return to space capability for itself. Um, when that finally launches and everybody goes, yay, it also means now we can start the clock and wait three years until we can do it a second time. Right. And of course, the first flight will be a test flight, which is a good idea because it's never flown before. And that's, you know, there could be bad things that, that could happen to it. So the first flight is, is going to be a test flight with uh, no people on board, maybe a, a car, uh, a boat, I, don't, I mean, whatever, or ballast, concrete block, whatever they're going to put in it. But, um, but that Space means that, that it'll be the first time that they have, the, the first time they will be able to launch something that they have confidence will get to orbit would be at the least... 33 months after that first launch. So it, it is, I understand why the, these um, decisions might be made, but it's just something to keep in mind that when we're talking about SLS and getting that first launch out the door, it doesn't actually mean that once they have that first launch, they can kick it into gear. They actually can't kick it into gear if they don't have a second launcher. Instead, it will be nearly three three years, or if there are any delays, three years before they're even capable of launching mission number two not great yeah uh, you know i've got mixed feelings on this um as i do about the entire sls program Just yeah i hear <laughs> you. about it all the way down it will see i mean i get um i get the idea to to not have that that expense but like you said it it does put a big delay in things uh or big you know sort of a fixed time gap yeah that, and that 
And this ties into other missions. I think this affects the James Webb Space Telescope as well, because I think it's built to launch on SLS, right? Or is it not? No, no, it's a... Um, it's on an atlas? Yes, it is. <laughs> right, the, right, the atlas that exploded. Just had an accident. Yep, that one. <laughs> anyway, there's, there, it does... It, no, oh, that's right. It, what it, it has an impact on... Uh, any planetary science that might happen because if you're planning a planetary science mission on sls suddenly you know your this decision means that you're going to launch that much further down the Mm -hmm. road right so it's it's a chain of events and you you do have to wonder i mean i think i think it's great on one level that nasa is doing this on another level you have to wonder what the rocket uh, field will look like by the time that they're doing launch number two of sls like when we talk about something like BFR, um, will SLS? There was a great, there's a great story that if I can find it, I'll link to it. Uh, a really good story on the Planetary Society website about how it's easy for people to say they should cancel the SLS. The problem is that it's not going to happen. And the way they put it was a quote from The Wire, which is, "You come at the king, you best not miss." And the Obama administration kind of came at the king and it missed. And the SLS continued to survive, even though it was, you know, out of constellation and it became SLS and all of that. And the idea here is that SLS is put together using in people in every congressional district in the United States. It is as a as a bit of classic politics. um, There is no political support to wind down the entire job. I mean, you went to Marshall, right? Like. Mm -hmm. building rockets is what they do that is why they are there and so when it's really easy to say maybe we should not do sls and just rely on spacex or something like that but first off then you're putting all your eggs in the basket of spacex and you know and maybe also blue origin and 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 some other stuff strata launch but um it's not realistic because this is a huge who what are these people going to (laughs) do And, and and you might say, hey, it's not an employment program. Well, guess what? It is an employment program. It is part of the military-industrial complex. It is money that is going into all sorts of different parts of the country. And uh, anyway, so it's not realistic to think that suddenly somebody's going to sweep in and say, nah, we're not going to do that anymore. Yeah. So SLS, realistically... Is if if you're going to say we need to stop doing it, you better have a really really good plan for what we're going to do instead. And uh, not that one couldn't be constructed. I mean, I, the the piece in the Planetary Society, the the, the writer suggests that um, you could build a you know well we're gonna we're gonna do this sort of thing, uh, retasking uh, the Marshall Flight Center. They're gonna they're gonna be building these these rockets or these engines or they're they're gonna do some stuff. But you would have to actually do all of that to come up with a replacement um, because otherwise it's just not going to fly politically. So here we are. Um, and that leads to a painful moment where we may spend as United States taxpayers, billions and billions of dollars on the SLS. And by the time it's ready to go, there's an alternative that's better and cheaper and that everybody prefers, but that may not stop it from happening. It's complicated. I mean, it, there's, it's a lot to consider. It's rocket it's science, Stephen. It's rocket science. It, it's very complicated. <laughs> uh, it, it is good. That blog post you're talking about was over on the Planetary Society. I've got a link in the show notes. It's really good. It's a good read. Great. Yeah, really uh, nice. And it's Jason Davis is the writer. And uh, yeah, super clear eyed, like easy to easy to pop off and say, let's let's just kill it. Yeah. Much harder when you look at the details. And, and that's I like that because 
it's so easy on the internet to just be like, ah, oh, they shouldn't do it. And then to have somebody say, here's, <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. but here's why it hasn't happened. And you get into that cold dose of reality and it's, it's good. So anyway, SLS, wait 33 months after the, the first launch for a second launch, apparently. Uh, so let's shift gears a little bit and, uh, and talk about something that is in orbit, but not for much longer. Oh, no. Do I need to get an umbrella and hide from space debris again? You need a hard hat. No, I'm just kidding. You don't need a hard hat. There's actually a really good link in the show notes about the tiny chance you have of being hit by space debris. But uh, this is the, the Chinese space station. We spoke about it a couple of years ago now on our space station episode. Uh, it is currently uh, on its way back uh, in an uncontrolled reentry sometime starting really now through April. Um, a controlled reentry had been planned, but it seems like in the over the last couple of months, China lost its ability to control the station. And it's not it's not a huge station, so we're not talking ISS size, but it's still sizable enough where components could make it to the ground. Um, and because it's uncontrolled, it's really kind of up to the uh, the atmosphere and the drag on the station of when and where it comes down. So we have some uh, some links in the show notes over to uh, a blog on the ESA site showing uh, kind of where it will come down between 43 degrees north and 43 degrees south. More likely, uh, by the way, to be at the uh, edges of that latitude band for some interesting reasons that are in the blog post. Um, but, you know, people, I think, just sort of freak out anytime there's something big coming down in an uncontrolled fashion. Uh, we've all seen those pictures of, uh, you know, parts of, of, um, of you know, housings and, uh, you know, rocket parts who, that come back. But th- the reality is a lot of stuff reenters uncontrolled every day. But this is a little bit bigger. So it's something that a lot of people um, are, uh, are keeping an eye on right now. Uh, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to keep an eye on it because I don't want to be hit by space debris. But yes, when Skylab came down, right, they, they, it was over Western Australia mm-hmm. where there's nobody. And it's a miracle that it even went over land because most of Earth is uh, water and not land. But uh, it, it'll probably be okay. But still, it's fun. It will get people talking about space stuff, which I think is always good and uh, probably won't cause any trouble. I think... Isn't isn't the story that that nobody or arguably well no, nobody has ever been hit by space debris? Some people have been hit by like uh, like meteorites, but uh, even then it's like a, a handful as far as is known. But space debris has never hit anybody, so it probably will continue because it's little pieces and it's not that big a deal. But still, it's fun to think about. Yeah. So uh, so that's going on. Something to yeah something to consider. So we, uh, we're going to get into our interview, uh, but first I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you have artwork you want to show off in a portfolio, or maybe you want to be the next big blogger. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. You can do it all on one site. All those tools are there within Squarespace system. There's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has it covered. If you do need help, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support that lets you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed. They're all responsive for you to show off your great ideas. 
we use Squarespace here at Relay. Uh, we had a blog post that we had to write today and, and put some images in it and links. And it's, uh, it's all really fast and easy to do with Squarespace. You don't have to know HTML. You can just go in and do it all in their editor. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the show. We thank Squarespace for their support of LiftOff. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, so it's interview time. We're going to be talking to Holly Griffith, who is a mechanical engineer at NASA's Johnson Space Center. She's a former flight controller for the Space Shuttle and International Space Station as well. She currently works in the uh, in the safety group for the life support systems on Orion. That is the vehicle that's replacing the Space Shuttle and uh, may one day go to the moon or Mars or who knows where else. It's the next generation astronaut capsule from NASA. She's also a huge Star Wars fan, the most readily identifiable Princess Leia fan in in the space community uh, and has also worked a lot uh, speaking around the country at conventions and schools about science, science fiction, how they influence each other, about women in STEM, NASA, and Star Wars. It all comes together. So, Holly, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into the the world of space? Like, how how did you get into this in the beginning? What inspired you to uh, become a mechanical engineer and work in uh, in space stuff? So my dad was always um, he was always into science fiction um, things. Like, I'm, so I'm an only child, and he was always into those things. You know, Star Trek and Star Wars, and um, so he introduced that world to me. And I was fascinated by it, and I saw Star Wars, and I decided I, I want to be Princess Leia when I grow up. So um, <laughs> we don't have Corellian Corvette, so I guess, well, NASA's probably the closest thing. So um, I thought, well, what's what can I do? What, what, what do I want to do at NASA? So every little kid, of course, goes directly to astronaut first, right? Because that's the coolest job. And so I thought, well what do I need to do to be an astronaut? So that led me to engineering. And so I got my engineering degree and, um, and it went on from there. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so where, so you worked, your background uh, is really interesting. You cover a lot of ground. You worked on, um, uh, space shuttle stuff on electrical power system systems, uh, for United Space Alliance. I wonder if you could tell 19 shuttle missions. That's pretty awesome. What, so what was that job like? What were you doing in that job? So in that job, uh, if you've seen Apollo 13, when they say Houston, we have a problem. I was, my job was basically what they were doing as Houston, only not as dramatic. Um, thankfully, so we, whatever the shuttle or ISS, whatever vehicles is up, we have all the data coming down from that vehicle. So in this case, shuttle. And my system was the electrical power system. The shuttle had fuel cells to power it. So uh, fuel cells take things. In this case, it was hydrogen and oxygen. And they combine together. And they produce water, power, and heat. So... We would we were monitor the the oxygen in the oxygen tanks, the hydrogen, the hydrogen tanks, the fuel cell component components themselves, and then downstream from the fuel cell, we would monitor the DC powered um, DC power and the AC power, and then you know every just go down the list from there. So we were we were responsible for all the power on the vehicle and then the fuel cells themselves. 
So uh, you, I, I feel like I, I, um, I, I skipped a step here, which is to say, so your background <laughs> as a mechanical engineer oh, sorry. Yes. Led, led you to be, and it's, I'm the one who jumped over here because I'm really excited to talk about you being like in mission control. But um, <laughs> it was your, I assume your background uh, and education as a mechanical engineer that helped yes. kind of lead you in the direction of ending up covering electrical power systems? Yes. So, um, so normally they would have an electrical engineer in that job, but, um, since, you know, they do have fuel cells and those are very mechanical, um, really to be a flight controller, I would say the most common degrees that I saw were probably aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, and electrical engineering. All right. So were you literally sitting in mission control? Yes, that's pretty cool. And and is this lift off, uh, lift off mission and uh, and return? Uh, like at various points, do you cycle in and out? So that's a good that's a good question. There are different certifications. Uh, one is for the orbit phase of flight, and then after you get that certification, you can get your asset entry certification. So I worked orbit for a while, and and I, while I was working orbit, I was in training to get my asset entry certification, and I did that. And then, um, so once I got that certification, I was able to work those phases of flight. So, uh, yeah, so I, I worked both toward, you know, towards the end, I was able to do both. What are some differences between those two modes of, of flight, those two parts of the mission? Oh gosh, everything is different. Um, I mean, we have different books for procedures for failures because things like, um, you know, on ascent, you don't, well, on orbit, you don't have to worry about aborts. So, you know, or, orbit's much easier. It's much, um, much more calm than ascent. And, and I would say entry is a little bit more calm sometimes than, um, than ascent, except for whenever you just have to bail out. But, um, because we sim all these things, right? We, I mean, we sim constantly. So on ascent, you would, um, you have you have procedures for every part of ascent. Like I mean, once you get to a certain uh, portion of ascent, where you know whether we can go tau, you know, do a trans um, Atlantic board, <clears throat> then you have different procedures because now we can actually land. Whereas before we could only do an RTLS, return to, la- to landing site, return to launch site. So. I mean, you were literally just swapping through, you know, different procedures, different books, different everything, depending on what phase of, of the launch you were in. And so the launch was extremely hectic, but it was, it was so fun because it was such an adrenaline rush and you just had to just constantly just be aware of, you know, your system and your situational awareness had to be so in tune of exact of what was going on in your system, what was going on with, you know, the, the vehicle what was going on with the crew, because for our crew, I mean, for our uh, system, the pilot was the, the main person we were most interested in because all of our switches were on the front, you know, the front right side of the vehicle where the pilot sat. So, you know, we had to keep in tune. Okay, well, what else is going on with the pilot right now? We're, we're sure the pilot's pretty busy, but if we were to have a failure, we need the pilot to be able to work our procedures. Um, so that was asset. And then, you know, once you once you got to um, to SRB SEP, you could breathe a little bit easier. Things, you know, calm down because you knew you were going to make it to orbit. Once you got to ET SEP, it was like, whew, okay, 
we're, we're done. And then you got, you started working your post-insertion procedures. You know, you open the payload bay doors and you were, okay, we're good. Entry, um, was a little bit, um, it wasn't as hectic as Ascent, but you had to keep in, things in mind like we were at a, a higher power level for entry. So the minute things started to go wrong, it's like if we needed to start powering down the vehicle for some reason, you know, power downs were something you just had to keep in the back of your head. So in case we started to lose a fuel cell, you know, okay, power down because we're already at this higher power level. So for different phases of flight, you just had to keep different things as a priority in your head, but ascent was definitely the most, the most hectic and the most, you know, kind of had little stickies all over the console whenever I would work ascent. <laughs> and that's the kind of situation where if we were seeing a very dramatic movie or TV show, that would be the thing where if there was an issue with the hydrogen or the oxygen or the fuel cells on ascent, they would be, you would be communicating and saying, okay, let me look at this. And would, would you have a backup? Like, are you in, first off, are you in the room for that? Yes. So we have, so every, every person you see in the front room in mission control, they all have at least one back room. So in our case, we had one, some consoles have four, like Inco, the instrumentation and communications, I think had like four back rooms. So when you're in the room, you're just the tip of the iceberg of your whole team that is somewhere else. Right, right, right. Oh, just, just behind the big, the big wall, the Hmm. big screen you see the BAP, just back there. Everyone's back there. All right. Did you ever have any um, hair raising moments in Ascent or was it all pretty, pretty okay? Ascent was, um, uh, yeah, we never had any hair raising moments in Ascent. Well, there was one for STS-135 and it wasn't during Ascent, but it was pre-launch. It was like T minus nine seconds or something crazy. And this, the, like the instrumentation for, you know, the beanie cap, the thing that, Oh, right, on, right on the top that covered the ET, yeah. the tank. Yeah. Um, well, the, some, the instrumentation or something went out to, to tell if it had actually come off all the way and was like out of the way of the vehicle. Like, like the shuttle, wasn't going to hit it if we launched. And so it was like T minus nine seconds or five seconds or something crazy. And, and they couldn't verify. And then someone had the bright idea, like put the video camera on it. <laughs> And so, uh, so we did, we like zoomed in with the video camera and it was, and it was like literally like five seconds. We were like, I guess we're not launching. And then someone was like, we're go. And it was like, I guess we're launching. (laughs) So that was, um, that was more funny than, I mean, no one was ever in any danger, but it was just more like, wow, we're going to screw up the launch for this. Um, that just would have been funny and embarrassing, I guess. But uh, no, on orbit, there was one, one flight, STS-117, where um, the Russian computers on the uh, ISS, on ISS, went down. And so we needed to stay docked longer to, to, to try to troubleshoot the situation. So in order to stay docked longer, you know, the, the hydrogen and oxygen for our fuel cells are basically like the gas in your car. But if, you know, every time you turned on the radio that used more gas. And every time you turn on your lights that used more gas. So what we had to do is turn off everything that we could to try to save as much gas as possible. And so that's not, that fell to us. So you show up on console and it's like, yeah, we have to power everything down. And by the way, if we don't fix this, uh, we're going to have to de we're going to have to 
the crew's going to have to ban an ISS and it's going to fall in the ocean. And that was my first certified flight. (laughs) What? (laughs) Don't break, don't break the space station. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So for that flight, we, yeah, we had to come up with a bunch of power downs and just turn everything off. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about the international space station. I know you spent some time, uh, there as well. Um, mm-hmm. What was your work like on that team? Uh, I was an OSO, op- an operational support officer. We were kind of like the handy men and women of the space station. So if something broke, we um, we you know we we would come up with a procedure to fix it. But if you go, I'll go back to Apollo thirteen. Remember, whenever they needed to replace the uh, carbon dioxide scrubber, and they needed to what put the the square peg in the round hole they dumped everything on the table and they were like, this is what you have to work with. Well, it's kind of the same situation on ISS, right? They can't, we can't just send them to Home Depot to pick up something. They don't have it. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a person or people whose job it is to track every, you know, every piece of equipment um, that they have on ISS. So we know what we're, what we have to work with. We don't have to dump it on a table anymore. We have computers for that. And, uh, and so whenever something breaks, it's like, we know what tools we have to work with. And then we know what, you know, materials, tape, whatever, cl- uh, cloth, and we send them to go to work. And then if, if we need to improvise something or, or make something, then we, you know, write up, we think about it. We have a, a building where we have all these mock-ups and we have everything in there that they have up on board. So we can... We can play around with it. We have the same tools, you know, and so we we can go to that building and if we need to build something or construct something or take something apart and put it back together, we can do all that. And then if we think we fix it, we write up a procedure and we uplink it to the crew and then we have them do the same thing and hopefully it works. So now you made a transition. Um, Uh You're working on Orion. So next generation stuff. What are you doing on that? What's your job now? Okay. So my, my official title is really long. Um, I don't know who came up with this. I'm a vehicle systems engineer for Orion in ECLIS, which is environmental control and life support system in safety and mission assurance. There we go. So that- I knew there was an acronym. <laughs> I knew there would be an acronym. <laughs> yeah. Well, in SNMA too. So safety and mission assurance. So what that means is I'm an engineer in, for the life support system for Orion and safety. Um, so what, so once everything's, well, what's pretty much everything's been designed or the design is in work. We, we get that sent to us and we look at it, you know, from the life, well, ECLIS is life support, which, you know, keeps the crew alive. And then thermal, which keeps the vehicle, you know, within proper temperature limits to keep the crew alive. So, um, we look at things from an environment, from an environmental point of view to see, you know, okay, does this look safe? Like we have, um, we have criteria that everything must meet and we, we, we are kind of the people that pick it apart and think, how could this break? How could this go wrong? And did they, whenever they were, the the design engineers were designing it, did they think of that? So it's like, you know, you have this valve, but did you think of, okay, what happens if this valve breaks and then this happens? Like, you know, why did you design it with, if this breaks and then, oops, now the crew's going to die. You don't have any redundancy there. So 
go back and you know think about I it. I realize I should probably have 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 defined Orion is the next generation yes, NASA I'm capsule, sorry. and right. and I, I think that that really changes how you view safety, right? Because this is a human spaceflight vehicle, right. so your safety standards are dramatically higher than it would be if it was just carrying cargo. As like the commercial, oh, yeah. as the commercial operators have found, getting certified for yes. a crew capacity is way different than just yes. carrying objects into space. It is. It is. It is. And then, and, and sometimes, you know, lately, cause we haven't flown crew since 2011, it, you know, so we've only had these uncrewed vehicles, you know, and everyone just thinks like, Oh, it's so easy. It's so easy. And it's, it's not. And, you know, so like what takes so long? Well, it's because we're going to have people on board and would you want your parent or child or significant other, you know, on board, if we, you know, we don't take the time to do it right. Would you want to go? <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's, yeah. The, and, it, and there's a reason that it, it takes long space is hard and we just want to make sure that we get it right. And that, you know, if there is one failure where we have backups to make sure that the crew can still get home safely. So your, your career has spanned, um, really a very, I think, interesting, time frame in NASA's history. So you got the shuttle program, you have this intermediate time now, like you said, you know, we're doing crew, but uh, not for in a uh, American vehicle, not for American soil, but that is coming back um, with Orion and then a commercial crew uh, at some point. Um, so I think it's, I think it's a really interesting time frame. Um, how do you think the, uh, from your point of view, the agency is, is gearing up for that again, for that return to crude flights? Um, I mean, we're just, for, so from my point of view, where I sit, we're, I mean, I go to work every day and have, oh gosh, there'll be some days where I'm in meetings from eight to five. Like, I'm lucky if I can, you know, I'll just have to have a little snack at my desk um, because we're just in meetings constantly with uh, Lockheed Martin, who's a the prime contractor, uh, with other groups around NASA from, um, engineering to flight operations. Um, my old stomping grounds <laughs> to, um, to ESA, you know, the European space agency, mm-hmm. because they're building the service module or designing service module. So yeah, we're, we're just, we're, trust me, we're trucking along. We're, um, you know, we're looking at, different parts for em1 which is exploration mission one which is the the first mission that's supposed to launch in i think 2019 now and then um em2 which is going to go up the um, em1 is is uh not crewed em2 is going to be a few years after em1 and is will have crew and so it's very very busy uh from my perspective because we're looking at uh, things like hazard reports, um, which uh, for EM2 right now, which are things that basically take a um, every system from you know, the, the top down and think of every major failure that could happen. And we list those failures and we say, okay, this is a failure and it could happen, but we don't think it will happen because um, it's like, well, we have this, we use this material. Well, uh, we tested it to these standards or well, we did this, you know, and then we have verifications where, where it's like, you know, well, we did, we did these tests and we verified that if this, if this happened, it, you know, it should still hold up 
beyond this temperature or pressure or, you know, whatever. So we're, um, we, those have been the first round of those have been written and now we're, we're just verifying them to make sure that we didn't miss anything. We also have, um, these things called failure FMEAs or FEMA's, uh, failure mode effects analysis, where we take every little component from like the ground up and we, analyze each little component, every valve, like seals, like, I mean, I'm telling you, you know, tiny little things. And we're like, what if this fails? What if this fails? What if this fails? And, and we give them a rating of how critical it is, you know, if they fail from, if it fails, well, you just lose insight, you know, it's a sensor. Okay. Well now you can't read this temperature anymore. Okay, well, we have backup because we have this other sensor downstream and we still basically know the temperature of the fluid in this line. So it, it could be that or it could be here's a tank, tank blows up, well, that's loss of vehicle or loss of crew or loss of that. So that's a major one that we really need to focus on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing. And we're, you know, from our point of view, we're just, we're trucking right along. It's and that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years is, is that, and then, um, just they're testing different components. And so we're, you know, we see the test results and sometimes the tests go like we want and sometimes the tests don't. And so we decide, okay, we discuss, well, well, this test didn't work out as we expected. What do we do now? What are our options? How does each option affect the schedule? How does it affect cost? How does it affect? And so we come up with, um, you know, all of, like I said, all of our options, and then we pick the what we think is the best one, and then we go from there, and then we see what happens, and then we rinse, repeat. <laughs> so before we go, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, this is the really broad question, which is um, thinking about your career trajectory and thinking about where we are now with space stuff, what mm-hmm. advice would you give to somebody? So a young person came up to you, and, and you probably have talked to people um, at, uh, when you've spoken at various things about, like, I want to go into space. What advice would you give them? Um, that's So if you want to be an, an astronaut to go into space, that's... That's a very interesting oh, I mean, question. Or the space. Oh. I mean, we can take it broader and just like into the space industry like you oh, did. just you, space you, industry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, so it depends on what you want to do because we have scientists and we have engineers. Um, if you want to do the engineering side, like I said earlier, I would recommend mechanical, aerospace, or electrical. That seems to be the three that I see the most. Um and if you want to be like a scientist, there's, you know, you could do, gosh, all kinds of things, anything from geology to astronomy to astrophysics to, um, to gosh, just pick your, your, pick your poison there because we have so many um, areas that, you know, study anything from, you know, we have all of our telescopes that study exoplanets and then we have things like, you know, um, the studying the, like the, the analysts that, analysis that that um like the mars rovers are doing so there's that there's um there's we have medical doctors we have our physiological physiologists and biologists who work with the astronauts who um you know whenever they're up in space they do all kinds of uh, experiments on themselves and then whenever they get back we have these people who basically you know they're like well, they're, they're astronauts are like guinea pigs and these guys, gals just poke and prod them and study all their stuff. And <laughs> like from ice, anywhere from eyesight to, um, 
blood to, I mean, you, you know, you name it, they've, they've, they look at it. And then we have, we have people who, um, we need communicators. We, you know, who things, they do things like design websites. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, who go out and, um, you know, speak like on NASA TV and things like that. And artists who do our websites and we have space lawyers. So I don't want people, you know, people who think oh, I'm not good in science or I'm not good in math. It's we have, you know, you can do so much things that work at NASA, but if you want to do the science and math part of it, um, yeah. So I, I mentioned those three things for engineering and then, you know, physics is another uh, major I've seen. So yeah, that would be my, my recommendation. Computer science. We have, we have it people. That would be another one. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and talking about this stuff. It's really great to, to talk to somebody who has actually, you know, been in the room where it happens, yeah. I suppose, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and uh, is, is working on the future of crewed spaceflight at NASA with Orion. That's, it's really awesome to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right. That was, that was a lot of fun, Jason. Yeah, nice to hear from people who actually work in space. I mean, again, not actually. I keep saying that. Not in space, in the space industry. Not Only a smaller number of people work in actual space. But still, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was. Um, so if you, uh, if you want to find links and stuff for this week, stuff we talked about, uh, you can head over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 68. The links are probably also in the app you're using to listen to, by the way. Uh, you can find them there. Uh, you can get in touch with us. You can send us an email. You can find us on Twitter, of course. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Uh, we also have a Tumblr where we post uh, space-related stories, kind of in between episodes. And Jason, what is that URL? Liftoffpodcast.space. It's good. I was hoping for a longer space, like a space, but I'll take what I yeah. get. There's, no, there's only the one A in, in space, though. If you type space. dot space, it doesn't work. It doesn't. No, you, know, you got just the one word. Yeah. It's good. Uh, if you want more of Jason in your life, and of course, why wouldn't you? You can follow him on Twitter, Jay Snell, uh, and he is the host of a bunch of shows here on Relay FM and over on The Incomparable. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ISMH, and uh, again, a bunch of shows here on uh, here on Relay. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>